Hey folks, Glenn from Made by Folk here. Trying a new intro tactic, recording this on my morning walk. The sun is shining on my face and it's uh, quite a nice morning here in northern Germany. And um, I want to give you a brief introduction to uh, today's podcast guest, who is Malika Favre, French illustrator now based in Barcelona. And I hadn't spoken to Malika, uh, I think we decided it was probably eight years, seven or eight years ago. So it was really nice to catch up with her. And we chatted about building a diverse portfolio, finding an agent, dealing with those pesky copycats. <laughs> and um, now it's lovely to catch up with her. I had a great chat and I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did recording it. Three minutes late and absolutely not ready. Don't rush at all. Take your time. This is really <laughs> for a chat. There's no no pressure. You can take your time. <laughs> I believe I was still in pajamas five minutes ago. Oh well, I mean, you could have stayed in pajamas for all I cared. You, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I do appreciate that you uh, dressed up for the occasion. <laughs> Oh, God. So I thought about this background, if you want to have a video. It's lovely. Yeah, that is my favorite poster of all time. The what? The Montreux? Yeah, so uh, good. One of my favorite projects. So I, I'm doing it from a different computer. So I'm going to check if the... Do you want the headphones or... Uh, I can hear you pretty well at the moment. So we can try without. If okay. you if you can hear me fine, we can, I can definitely... Hear you totally fine. Great. So I'm I'm recording our backup already. Oh man, I don't know. I didn't get myself a drink. Ah. <laughs> well, Malika, thanks for taking the time to talk to me this evening. I hope uh, you can. I hope you've had a productive week and that we can like finish the week together and just relax a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely been productive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was working up until yeah, I would say 15 minutes ago. <gasps> Oh no! Rush, well, well delivering, but yeah, it's good. I massively good. appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to to talk to me about. I have lots of exciting questions um, and okay. lots of really um, uh, interesting topics that I'd like to discuss with you today. So, uh, first of all, t tell me a little bit about where we're talking to you today. I mean, you can see a lot of really nice artwork on on the yeah. back wall there. Where so, are we sitting? I'm in my um, I'm in my flat in Barcelona. Where I moved like two years ago, I think, pretty much from after being in London for 15 years. 15? So, yeah, it was a long time. I didn't realize you were in London for that long. I thought like maybe yeah. like roughly how long I've been in Germany, like maybe like 10 years or something. And how long were you at Airside for again? I think that's where we initially five met. Years. Five, and five and years. years. Yeah, that's where we met a long time ago. That is a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think like since then you've you've built such a diverse portfolio of work. I think when we first talked, it, I think it was your your Alpha Bunny series, which which first that's, caught my yeah. eye. That was uh, the first thing I did. I think that was kind of like really personal, and yeah, it was released by Airside actually as a screen print on their shop. 
And was that just like a side project, just something yeah. that you did for, for your own benefit rather than for Airside or? For the shop, because I mean, that was the beautiful thing about, uh, about Airside is like they had a shop and basically when their designers had, we were a small team, like all together in the studio was like 12 people. But uh, yeah, when any of us had kind of some downtime waiting for feedback from clients or anything, we could work on personal projects for the shop. So create a print, a t-shirt, you know, and it was kind of, and then they would produce it, pay for it. And uh, yeah, and any profits made from it would kind of go back into the shop. It was kind of a virtuous circle uh, to keep us happy. Yeah, I think it's, it's weird how few studios do that still. Like that still seems to be not a, a very common thing for, you know, how, how many people was Airside at that time? Maybe like five 12. to 10, 12 people? Maybe 12, but like four, maybe three or four designers, not that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I felt like, I think I read an interview with you somewhere where you said at one point you made a really clear decision that, okay, if I, if I just continue doing you know, uh, uh, sexy ladies doing, you know, some different poses. I think you had already then gained the, the Kama Sutra project yeah. with, with, um, pay, was it for Penguin or was it for? Yeah. yeah, it was for Penguin. That was actually one of my first projects as a, I wasn't even out of Airside. I was kind of doing it on the side. Like I think I had a month left or something. And, and yeah, and that project came in through the door and I was like, pressure is on. I like, mean, that, that must, lucky. <laughs> That must have that that is a stroke of luck. I mean, but well, I, I think they must have obviously seen some potential in your your other work. Also, like if, if you look at it, uh, my first personal work was the Alpha Bunnies, which was an alphabet of bunny ladies. Um, and then after that, I got commissioned by Wallpaper to do another one, but with pinups, but still ah. an alphabet and still sexy ladies. <laughs> and then I think when when Paul Buckley, the creative director of Penguin, came to me, he clearly had in mind for me to do another alphabet yeah. <laughs> for the Kama Sutra. So it's kind, of, it's kind of one of these things where I think he knew what he wanted and he saw a good example of it already. So uh, I think I got lucky. I mean, that was like the perfect combination of that style, that core idea of making an alphabet and then uh, bringing it together with the, the sexy positions of the Kama Sutra. I mean, like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was the ultimate sexy alphabet because <laughs> yeah. actually that's the last one I did. I never did another alphabet after that. And when I got asked, I was like, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I've done it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, def- yeah. I mean, I think you've done enough versions of that now that that was like the pinnacle of that, that core idea. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't want to be the girl who only does sexy alphabets. That's pretty niche. That kind of led me to, to, to this point in the interview where I think you said you set up your hide and seek exhibition at that time with a clear goal of, yeah. I need to show that I can do something else as well. Because otherwise, people are just constantly going to come to me for this one thing because my portfolio mostly consists of this one thing at that yeah. time. Um, like, tell people about the thought process. Like, did you then sit down and just go, okay, well, I'm just going to try and do something completely diff- different intentionally to steer me in a different direction? Or was I think it more... I, already, I already had that idea. I think I had the idea for one of the designs of Hide and Seek. I think it was the girl with the blinds. And oh, I think yeah. originally it was an idea. I thought of it for a dress. I don't know why, but I kind of thought like it would make a super cool stripy dress with like yeah. a little detail of a girl peeking through the blinds. And... And yeah, I think I kind of parked that idea. And when I went freelance and I realized that the only interest I was getting was for sexy alphabets or sexy characters and then or very glamorous Parisian ladies, which I was doing at the time. 
I kind of thought like, I don't want to keep doing that. Like, I mean, I don't want to, you know, my career is going to end before it even starts if I, if I just do that. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, I want to, I want to show that I can do something else. And also I think being at Airside, I was used to doing personal work. So I just sat down um, and started working on a series starting from that girl. <laughs> and that's how the idea came around. And also the idea came from just looking at architecture around me, like very simple things. So like buildings, zebra crossings, things I saw every, every day and trying to abstract it yeah. and, and kind of make it into, yeah, do this mix of like almost op art. I think the op art thing about my work comes from there. And people still say, think my work, I mean, they still describe my work as like op art meets pop art. Or, but actually, I don't do much of that anymore. I, but I, yeah. yeah, I guess recently you've, you've kind of, on or at least the work that I've seen of yours seems to use less of that sort of pattern yeah, uh, like pattern yeah. finding and like maybe um but is that is that something you feel you've grown out of or is that was that an intentional no. decision no I just think it, it evolved I yeah. think my work like evolved like it's been nine years I think now or yeah nine or ten years nine years I think and and just my work evolved like little by little and I think for me, I see it more as like every time I, I explore something a little bit new within the same style, I'm adding, you know, kind of levels of depth to my work. But from time to time, I always revisit, you know, from time to time, I revisit some very pure negative space. I mean, like the Montreux, you know, this Montreux poster was very much like, you know, more like minimal, like what I was doing at the beginning. But then when I do the New Yorker cover, they are much more... You know, they have much more shadows and depths. And yeah. even though they are using very few colors, they are much more like realistic scenes in a way. But I think everything is, I like playing with all these different things. And also I'm, I'm the first one who is going to get bored by my work. So I always need to. I'll never get bored of it. <laughs> but let's talk quickly about my favorite poster of yours behind you for the Montreux Jazz Festival. Uh -huh. Like, I, I mean, where do you, where did you, I mean, I, I don't want to get technical about it, but where did you start with that? Did you just like draw one um, instrument and then just kind of see where, where a body fitted in or how did yeah. you, how did you plan that out? Well, it's actually, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a funny story because I did lots and lots of sketches for Montreux and I send them lots of ideas, even though it's a complete carte blanche. Like, you know, Mathieu, the director told me, if you want to send me the final, send me the final. But that was almost like, I was like, no, 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 I want to communicate with you. And so in, in, I had a lot of ideas. And one of the ideas I had was kind of a, a Josephine Baker type character dancing uh -huh. as well, because I was always fascinated, um, always fascinated by her. And then kind of thought, but then it was too jazzy in the classical sense, mm -hmm. almost. So I think the, it actually started with that. And then I pushed it into something much more one-dimensional with the shadows. And as I was kind of sketching it, I almost saw like a, you know, um, a saxophone, you know, between two of the characters. And that's how the idea came about. And then I was like, I did a really, really bad sketch because the funny thing with negative space is that you can't show how you're going to do it before doing it. Yeah. So you can't sketch it. You can say it. You can say the concept is going to be there. So I, I showed like one that really didn't work. You know, it looked really forced, either both the body and the saxophone. And then I told Mathieu, and we met actually in London, and I told him, this is it. This is the idea. Um, and I'm going to make lots of instruments in between bodies dancing. And I think he looked at me and he was a little bit scared. <laughs> he was like, 
um, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> it was more like, and I, it was very scary because I didn't know if it was going to work. You know, okay. you never know. And, and then I went like methodically. So I started with the big one, the contrabass in the, um, mm-hmm. the middle. And so I started with that and started building bodies around that. And the rest was almost like a puzzle. I must have done like 50 different versions. No way. You know, I was just evolving. It's like, it was a very organic like the bodies were changing, then the instruments were changing, and then it's like a five, fine balance. But it took like a good, I'd say, month and a half. Wow. Just for I, the drawing. I mean, I, it's, it was worth all the effort because I think the more, every time I look at it, I notice another detail that I didn't notice the last time. And it flows so naturally from one person into another instrument, into the next person. It's uh, it's incredibly well done. Like I, it's I can't. Still one of my favorites, I have to say. It's oh, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, when you like when you retrospectively, when I look at it, I'm like, how did I do that? <laughs> it's not. But it's funny because now when clients come to me and you know tell me like, oh, I would, we would love something like this, I'm like, no, it's not gonna happen <laughs> because it's you need freedom and time and and and. And you can't apply negative space to everything. That's the yes. truth of it. You it doesn't always. Find, yeah. It doesn't always work. You need to find shapes that resonate with each other that can, you know, like, yeah. This is the thing. This was the perfect combination. Like most intru- instruments have a sort of organic shape because they need to fit around the, around the, the human body. Well. And yeah. that, that combination just made that idea work. I, like, I don't think you could just say, okay, well, let's do that with... I don't know, tech devices or something. (laughs) No, exactly. Or like cafeteers or like... Yeah, yeah. No, you can't. You need... And I couldn't even have done it with men, to be honest. True. I think because the instruments are so curvy... Yeah. You know, it had to be a woman. And anyway, I wanted it to be a woman. But... uh, yeah, so it became, uh, but it became, yeah, one of, definitely one of my uh, my favorite projects. And then I got to go to the festival. <laughs> oh, I bet that was, I bet that was a highlight as well. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned the the like sort of looking back retrospectively at your work, which leads on to my next topic quite nicely uh, about my favorite book in my house. I know I'm, 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 I'm being far too, I'm, I'm being far too uh, uh, positive here, but it is definitely still one of the books that I like to give people as a present as well. And this is like your first sort of monograph of work. And I think it'd be really interesting for people to, to hear um, just what that, what that process was like for you. I mean, you know, I think most of us creators have to at least sort of edit their work done for a portfolio, maybe like for their website. And that can be difficult enough. But to really put it together into a, a, a printed book that is published by a publisher, um, did you get some help there on figuring out what to show? Did you do that that process completely by well, yourself? No, I think we, we, I mean, we definitely worked together with Counterprints. I think the idea was like, I, they had done the book for, for Hey Studio. Mm-hmm. just before mine um and um basically hey studio are really good friends here in barcelona so i think you know it was at that point that i heard about them and that they contacted me to uh to potentially do a book about my work and the idea was like i could choose like i could just give them my work and they could find the logic and how to organize it okay. or i could be involved if i wanted to like it was kind of like i was giving myself as much work as i wanted to but they were happy to roll with it and for sure they were going to design it which is mm-hmm. fine by me. 
Um, and so I, I guess that was the, but I'm very controlling. So I knew there was no way I was not getting involved. <laughs> At least with Counterprint, you've picked a publisher that knows what they're doing. Like, I mean, in terms yeah. of graphic design, well, design books in general, yeah. I mean, Counterprint are going to produce a nice book of your work. Like you must yeah, have I had knew a... It, I knew it was going to look nice. I knew it was going to look nice. That was for sure. But, but also I think I'm a very... I'm a very structured person, actually, strangely mm-hmm. for an artist, but uh, I'm very structured in my head and I need to make sense of things. Yeah. And I think when I looked at, uh, because it was like uh, eight years of work and I realized how prolific I had been, actually, it, I was like, how many pieces have I done? I mean, we ended up with a 216 pages book with, I don't even know how many illustrations in it. And so when I saw, when I started like kind of selecting the kind of work I wanted to show, I was like, we need to organize it. And in a way that's interesting, not in a way that's like editorial, you know, advertising. I mean, yeah, that, that, that wouldn't have suited your, 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 your entire back catalog of work anyway. Like it's no, much and, it's, and I think it's irrelevant. I think yeah. the, it's irrelevant who it's done for. I think what's more relevant and I guess what, what kind of started me on that process already was the website, uh, my website, which I did with a um, guy from Future Fabric, who was also an airsider, my airsider. And an ex-Form 55-er as an well. An ex-Form 55 <laughs> But I think we went through that process in a sense when, uh, when I did my website, because also then I had to divide my work and I divided it by colors, mm-hmm. which was you know, quite a, an interesting one. And then dividing it by themes. And I always felt that it was more relevant to divide it by, you know, like movies, erotica, by themes. But then I had to find, I had to find the perfect amount of themes to divide my work in. Not too mm-hmm. many, so it doesn't become too overwhelming. And so that was a real kind of thinking process. So I did, I just started, you know, reorganizing my work in different ways and seeing what works. And, and we ended up with seven categories, which is a perfect number. And we could have had one more, but... I like seven. Yeah, no, it's so, ideal. And we skipped on the animals, but I didn't have enough animals anyway. And I oh, well, I, I already heard on the grapevine that you might be working with Counterbrint on a, on a new book. Oh. <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah, we are. <laughs> the second one there. It's going to be great as well. So then you they can bring animals good. into that one. <laughs> yeah. No, no animals on no? that one. Okay, all right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was really fun. Like, it was a lot of... Um, back and forth and you know we decided on the design and also the, the design was pretty minimal no text you know nothing about from like introduction of chapters and I don't know I really wanted it to be like personal like a journey and actually I realized that it's almost chronological so even though it's divided by categories the themes and ideas I was exploring at the beginning like where you know kind of evolved into different things so you end the book on you know, on things that I'm working on now, like, you know, kind of society and, you know, kind of more work that resonates with what's happening today. And yeah, yeah, it was fun. Do you think like when you were mentioning the sort of work that resonates with society, um, do you think that getting those first couple of jobs with the New Yorker, did, did they accelerate your desire to kind of make work that makes more of a statement? Or do you think yeah. that would have happened quite naturally anyway and you would have done that more in your self-initiated work? I don't know. No, I think it has. I mean, I think I can thank The New Yorker a lot for that because actually when I started work, I started working with them pretty early uh, in my career, but mainly for like the movie 
TV reviews. Yeah. So it wasn't really anything to do with like society or feminism or, you know, kind of, you know, more social subjects. But can you remember what you're sorry? I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. Tell me. Do you remember your first cover for the New Yorker? I'm just trying to remember which one. Yeah, it was a page turner in uh, 2016. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Actually. But so that was actually that cover. I think that cover came about because I had done so many illustrations for the New Yorker, even (laughs) though it never covers. And somehow it caught the eye of uh, Françoise Mouly, the uh, art director of the covers. So I think she, and I really, I still remember the day I received that email. I still remember it. <laughs> I was at a exciting. wedding. I was at a wedding and I was drunk. Saturday, <laughs> 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 and I was like, "Ooh!" <laughs> and I started jumping around basically because it was just an email saying, "Would you be interested in sending over some cover ideas?" Why would you not be interested? Like, what a question! <laughs> that was my dream, actually. That was always my dream. I bet. Were the people around you at the wedding as excited as you were when you got yes. that email? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. I got them excited too. It's funny because I didn't even, at that moment, I kind of felt like I already had a cover, even though I didn't. <laughs> but I think the next day, because I was euphoric, but the next day it kind of down on me that, oh my God, I need to stand really good ideas. So I actually yeah. took, I think I took two weeks, two full weeks of work. <laughs> like, don't talk to me. Don't send me emails. Don't send me anything. I'm working on New Yorker covers. <laughs> and then I sent, I think I sent her like 25 ideas or wow. something <laughs> like that. And she was a little bit surprised. What and, is the, what the, what's the process like? And do they give you a specific topic for each cover or do they just kind of say, here's some of the stories that are in the issue? Like what, what, what's the, no, what's the brief it, like? It never, it, I mean, no, it's quite independent from the inside of the uh, of the issue. I think it's more like broader theme for like what's happening out there, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's more tied to like events, time. That's why sometimes you have very last minute covers like the Bob Dylan yeah. when he won the Nobel Prize of Literature because that was a, you know, news, got to do a cover. But they work in different ways. Like some, you can, sometimes I send ideas. So I just, I have an idea or I'm thinking of a broader theme like holidays or reading or... And I just do some ideas and send it to her. So you kind of, I'm submitting them. But then sometimes, for example, like uh, she wanted to, there was an issue where she wanted to cover about women in the tech industry. And so that's quite a specific theme. And so basically she sort of me straight away. And, but then she still gives you a lot of freedom. So she tells you, we've got a cover coming about women in tech. Can you send us ideas? Huh. But you never know. She never tells you what to draw. It's always about... It's almost like it's your voice, it's your vision. It's like, what do you want to share? How do you see it? That's fascinating. That's fascinating to me to to hear how how that process works. And I'd love to I'd love to actually speak to the New Yorker about like what that uh, should, that that, that just blows my mind. The amount of talent they can have on their covers is just you know like it's like the you know the cream of the crop that they can pick from. Uh, it must be an incredibly rewarding job to be editor uh, and um, being or, or creative director, I guess. Uh, being yeah, and I think they, I think they really uh, they never they never change your drawing. I mean, they never change my drawing. Never. Never, like never, like never. a little. Oh, have you thought about changing this or? Like... Not really. Not huh. really. I mean, once the idea is approved, what can happen is that they don't like your idea, and then you don't have the cover. Sure. So, your idea is approved and your composition is approved 
um, it's fine. The only thing they can tweak is colors, you know, yeah. so it looks better in print or, you know, because they do a lot of, uh, you know, they always do color tests and sure. but that's it. Like, no, no, they're really, I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite clients. I bet. So now that you've done quite a few, do you, do you have a personal favorite of the, the covers that you've done? I mean, the Dylan one you just mentioned, I mean, mine's probably the surgeons, the, the four surgeons looking in because that, that caused such a wave of, yeah. you know, no, social the, feedback. I think the surgeons was like, as a reaction to that cover was totally unexpected. So Indeed. I think in terms of impact, that's definitely my favorite stories. Really? Did you not think like, I mean, that was, no. that, did that not feel like the first time no. I saw that, I was just like, that's, that's like a perfect cover. Like what? But, what but you more? Know that it, it's the funny thing is that it wasn't intended like this. Okay. I think it was always in the background. I think any illustrator, you know, when, especially when you draw something personal, there is always something in the background that's kind of you're hinting at because that's the way you feel. And but yeah. for me, this cover was the theme was the broadest you can think of. It was the body. What is it? Health, body, and medicine. Mm -hmm. That's what I had to send. Like, so when the theme is so broad. I always kind of start from a personal place. Mm -hmm. And so my personal place was the operation I had when I, when I was six, I got my, an eye operation because I had very heavy strabism. Okay. And, um, and I still remember very vividly that moment of going, you know, under anesthesia and, and, you know, kind of falling asleep and having these faces over me. And, and I was operated on by a woman surgeon, you know, sure. and she, she did an amazing job. And I think that cover, I meant it as a tribute to her which became a tribute to all of them. Amazing. Because you know? I think, yeah, it's like instantly relatable. If you've ever been in a hospital and had yeah. an operation of any kind, you will probably have seen a view similar to that in some way. Yeah. And I guess what made it so popular was that it was very easy for groups of uh, healthcare workers to recreate that exact moment, which was a, a lucky accident or had completely. you ever? No, completely. I mean, I've never done anything for it to go viral. It's like, <laughs> never. It's like, there was no, I mean, it's, it's also, a, I have to thank uh, Susan Pitt, you know, the surgeon who, who started the challenge and put it online and, you know, she's the one who started it and then it just like exploded. <laughs> But but it's true, and actually, the, and one of the funny stories that um, I heard, I think it was from her, um, that actually, in order to take that picture with all the women, you know, kind of around that central light, uh -huh. you had to have a man taking the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so also, I thought it was really interesting because it was also because a lot of people, you know, you always have the grumpy one who find it exclusive, you know, kind of you're excluding people and stuff like that, but. But no, actually, I think it was, I love the, I, I love to know that the picture every time was taken by a man because that woman had to be on that picture. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. Yeah, <laughs> and no one thought of that, but yeah. But it amazing. was amazing. I think we had like, I don't even know how many, like 6,000. I don't even, I lost the numbers. I, I mean, I saw a lot of them, but yeah, it just seemed like every, every other day at that time, I would see another version of it pop up somewhere yeah. on, my, on my social feeds. It was great, great to see the impact it had. Yeah, it was amazing, that cover. And I think it, it made me, that cover and seeing its impact made me more conscious about some kind of responsibility I had. And I think this is from that point on that I kind of really, uh, you know, dedicated myself more to, you know, taking on projects that, that could change things or at least, you know, that were 
yeah, just like more like a mirror to society. I think it's, you know, then there was the Saudi Arabia cover, you know, these kind of projects. I was like, this is what I want to do. Maybe my work can help with that. And what a great platform to have as as the New Yorker, that they actually open it up, um, you know, for you to be able to to promote those kind of ideas. Yes. It's, uh, it's brilliant. So you uh, briefly touched on, uh, like, the, 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 the influence that your work can have. And I think we, we briefly joked about, you know, you're technically now on social media, at least. Also, I mean, I don't want to say it, but, you know, you could be classed as an influencer, like a creative influencer. <laughs> I know you hate this term. <laughs> and, um, I'm I very close was... to putting not an influencer on my Instagram bio. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely. But, I mean, obviously, you have a large social following. Yeah. And yeah. inadvertently, the things you show, the, the work you do, and the the items you portray uh, are going to have an influence on on some of those people yeah, that follow you. Uh, but I think we got talking about this 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 topic in particular because you were saying that more and more brands were kind of wanting to to con- like like to to hire you almost as a uh, ambassador or, or or a partner in some topics. And you you said like I never I never really want to get into that. Uh, and I'd love to just, you know, h- hear your opinion on what what you think of this whole trend of, you know, using this this v- quite close connection to your audience yeah. um, for another brand to kind of piggyback on um, on that success. Well, it's, I mean, it's basically free marketing plus really nice illustrations. So you know, it's like. I think it's, I can totally understand why it's happening and, and I'm not going to stop it and no one is going to stop it. And it's just not for me, but it doesn't mean it's not for everybody else. But I don't know. I always kind of felt like the work should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I know, you know, social media, it can be a great tool and I use it as a tool and it definitely helped me a lot. But for me, it's, it's, it's my personal choice. But also, for example, I don't put selfies of me. I don't put... I don't put many pictures of me on my Instagram, very rarely, like actually when I do an interview or something. Yeah, like today that. I think was one of the first times yeah. in a while. But I, I, I never do it. And, and I never do it because I want my work to speak for itself. I don't want my persona. I'm not my persona. Like, it doesn't matter. I could look anywhere. I, would, I, I could look. The work is the work. And I think that's what um, confuses me a little bit with a lot of the commissions I'm getting these days, or at least I'm... I'm being proposed um like in a lot of the emails i'm getting i don't know do these people really want my work or do they or want your audience, audience yeah. you know yeah, yeah. because because more and more they're of course they're asking me to do illustrations but more and more uh, i see that clients put contractually that you have to put posts on your instagram and stories when you do a project and for me it's like no my service to you is great illustrative work and this is like again i'm not your pr agency and also i don't know i think it would feel fake i think i i I built my audience with never doing that i've never been paid for a post in my entire life and i will never be it's just like because for me this is like and i use it and it's true i have influence but i use it to promote the work of other artists i think that's my platform to do that exactly i think that's a really i think that's a really 
you know, honorable way of looking at it. And I think you've already been doing this on the side with one of your side projects as well. That uh, I can't afford this, but maybe she can. Which you're running with a, an old friend of yours, I think. Um, yeah. I've, I've, mis- I've forgotten her name. Georgie, George Wu. Georgie Wu. And yeah, we met at uh, we met at Nexus when we were both uh, represented. <laughs> and uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, side project. So this is like another Instagram channel that you are sort of cross promoting. Uh, yeah. And you're basically just archiving things that you guys used to send to each other. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's one of these, you know, silly projects that came out of the pandemic, really. Like, you know, everybody being stuck at home and spending a lot of time on the phone with her. But the way it, uh, the way it started was quite funny because back when I was in London, um, we realized with Georgie that uh, we do actually very different work, but we have very similar taste in a lot of things when it comes to objects and you know home decor and basically our approach to beauty and what we find beautiful but uh, but then the joke was that every time Georgie was sending me something that she liked like she found a new really cool table or look at that and I I just bought it like I just started buying everything because I really loved it <laughs> and so I think as a joke she started that Instagram years ago and um, and kind of saying, and it was called, I can't afford it, but maybe you can. And everything was curated <laughs> for me. It was like, just buy it. Buy That's it. great. <laughs> the, a couple of months ago, we were joking about that and, and kind of thought like, well, why don't we do it together? Because she completely dropped the ball on it. You know, it, 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 she wasn't doing it anymore. And, and also I was, I had so many, we both, I think, have so many, um, things we want to share with the world, like mm-hmm. objects. I mean, we, I, I can't buy everything I love, but I love so many things. Yeah. Basically, uh, we thought, okay, that's a, a place where we could just share that and let's do it as a joke. And uh, and it's picking up. It's cool. I think it's like the the aesthetic. You can see, how, like you were saying, how your how your tastes fit together very well, yeah. and the general aesthetic of that account is just really. It's just really nice and um, <laughs> vibrant. Uh, it kind of puts a smile on your face going through that feed. So I'll try and I'll try and link that as well when uh, oh, cool. when we're when we're done here. Uh, no, because it's, it's um yeah, it's a good way as well to promote other people. You know, architects. Yeah. You know, it's just it could be anything. Artisans. I think we're both, and basically we're building our ultimate shopping list. <laughs> I mean, my boyfriend doesn't have to look for a gift ever anymore. Yeah, it just goes through that and then buys you like a, what was it? The, yeah. There was like a sofa that I think was like 10 grand or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the problem is that our, our, it's part of our joke as well that like, well, because it's our imaginary shopping list, it's going to be really expensive. Money, money's no issue. <laughs> money's no issue for our imaginary selves. So we went a bit bonkers, but it's like nice. It's like, um, say, it's an outlet. Yeah, it's like wind. It's like the the modern version of window shopping. You know, you just kind of like put together the things that you'd love to have if you won the lottery. Yeah. Exactly. to take a little break to thank Mammal Sounds for continuously allowing us to use their excellent music in our show. Today's track is by Daste and it's called Same As It Ever Was. And I'd highly recommend that you go and check out mammalsounds.com or find them on SoundCloud. 
to listen to more of their back catalog. Another thing that I have often seen you tweet about, at least, is this thing that seems to happen to a lot of illustrators, especially uh, recently. And that's that either other creatives or mostly like companies sort of take your work or things that look 99% like your work um, and then just either resell it or repurpose it for a completely different thing. And that must have been, I mean, maybe even funny the first time it happened, but I, I mean, I can only imagine, it seems to happen to you quite regularly that somebody blatantly rips off your work. And I wonder, A, like, what's your current attitude towards this? And B, like, how are you dealing with this? Uh, Like, do you just try and ignore it now? Do you have like a legal team that just team. No, it used to, it used to, it's funny because actually I think it used to piss me off more at the beginning Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to start and I thought it was so unfair. You know, it's like, I've worked my ass off. Mm -hmm. This style is my, I mean, it's not that it's mine, but it's like, it's, it's personal. It comes from a personal place. And also they do it, but so much worse. And I'm like, what are you seeing people? What's wrong with you? (laughs) It's always horrible, but but I think, I mean, for me, I, I learned to dissociate uh, throughout the years and kind of the different type of cases. So I will never stop, um, you know, the students from doing a reproduction and, you know, kind of reproducing a piece of work, putting it on their Instagram. Sure. I can send them a nice, when it's not credited or they're pretending their own, I, can, I send a nice message saying, man, yeah. please credit, that's it. But if there is no commercial aspect to it, sure. it's fine. I, I take it as a, and actually it's, it's so everywhere now that I'm sure some people think I'm ripping other people off. So in a way, I, I, I like the idea that I started something, you know, that there is, I think there is this style is everywhere. So this, I'm okay with it. But then when it's, um, when it's either a brand blatantly, you know, taking my work, putting it on something, on a product, then mm-hmm. I get really pissed off. Yeah. And worst, worst even is when it's an advertising agency, and I know I've been all over the mood boards and they just basically, I think the problem for me is when I can recognize straight away mm-hmm. which piece of work was copied. So it's not about the style because the style is technically it's not very hard. And if you don't have the composition skills, the color sensibility, it's going to look bad. Yeah. But then when someone, um, especially brands and agencies, basically co- entirely copy and change like two things on a piece of work and then sell it to a client yeah then you can I just imagine you can imagine the meeting where they had loads of mood boards of your work and then the client's like yeah this is great we'll just you know we'll, we'll have we'll have something like yeah. that and then they're like oh wait uh malika is gonna cost probably too much for their budget uh exactly. we can just sort of wangle it ourselves and uh, no one will ever notice <laughs> exactly and i always i mean i always feel bad because it's always when i when i start uh, talking to these agencies and you know I kind of, because I never let it slide anymore. Uh, you know, it's always some kind of junior designer's fault or someone who is on the holiday or on maternity leave. It's a lie. It's yeah. the creative director. You're responsible. Yes. You are. Definitely. Like, I mean, they have to check. The intern is not responsible yeah. because he didn't have a choice, you know? I don't and think any studio I ever worked in 
didn't have a final check before things went out the door. So, like, I don't think you can blame uh, somebody junior for um, a mistake like that. Definitely. And, I mean, at the end of the day, I realized that... I, I, I think I got my uh, one of my first serious case, like maybe six years ago. It was right at the beginning. And, and I looked for a lawyer and uh, I invested in a lawyer <sighs> and, and it worked. Good. And after that, I kind of thought, okay. So actually what I did, and maybe that will help some other illustrators out, the first time you need to invest. You need mm -hmm. to invest. It's not fair. You need to spend your own money to defend something that is yours. Mm -hmm. But I, I really saw it as like I, I'm – it's going to get me ang angrier and angrier. And if there is something I can do, I'm going to do it. So yeah. what I did is whatever settlement I would get from these disputes, these legal disputes, I would keep it on the side and I wouldn't spend it. So this was used to pay the next lawyer. Ah, so genius. <laughs> genius. <laughs> I always feel like the previous guy is paying for the next guy. That's so, such a great idea. <laughs> And, and so now it's been a, now I have I have lawyers in London I have a great lawyer in Paris and it's not even taking me energy because over the years I've I've understood I've gotten to understand how the law works yeah. um, you know how it, it, it is completely doable if it's within Europe for example even better if it's in the UK or France but it's rarely the case mm -hmm. very hard if it's in China I mean you can't win everything you have to know where to put your energy and which battles to pick but then they don't. They don't, I mean, with me, I think I kind of built a bit of a reputation, <laughs> but they don't get away with it. I mean, I, I see it. I send my, my little um, polite email of, uh, yeah, I'm sending that to the lawyers. And then the next letter they get is from my lawyers. And I don't even think twice about it now. Brilliant. I think that's a really, I think that's really solid advice because you kind of need to show that this is not something to mess around with. And this is not like, this is your work, your livelihood, and they should be paying somebody properly to do this work and not just ripping somebody yeah. else off. And uh, I love, I love this, this technique of, you know, the first settlement just funds the next time it's going to happen because you're right. Like it is probably likely to happen yeah. again and again, just and because. Now, and actually it, it makes you stronger. And like, now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, so now, all the previous settlements, they are going to pay when I'm actually going to go to court, yeah. which I never had to do, but now I can. So I think when you know you can, and it's not going to cost you, you're kind of like, you don't hesitate as much, you know, it's, it's, and you need to find a good lawyer, which is like, it, it takes time because a lot of them are, you know, they just, they don't care. And this also is kind of building a relationship with your lawyer is, it's like finding an agent. I mean, it's, it's people you're going to work with, uh, you know, it's, I think it can be very draining and, and, and I completely understand as well if a lot of artists don't want to spend that energy because it is energy. But, but yeah. I know for me, I, and also I think it's easier because I have a big following. So the threat uh, of uh, putting yes. it on, on social media, contacting the clients, I think the threat is, it's not the same when you're a starting illustrator, you have less leverage. Yeah. Good point. But I think you need to you need to do what you can, and and a lot of them will settle. That's what I found. Mm -hmm. A lot of them will want it to to be settled and never to hear from you again. So I am, I am quite glad that on social media, at least 
um, there seems to be a lot of support for those artists then that are getting ripped off. You know, like they seem to then yeah. quickly snowball into a thing where then the brand has to be like, yeah. ah, okay, we made a bit of a mistake there. We should probably just settle and, you know, like let it blow over but and hope. Usually, usually what you realize is that, and that's the, the shame of, I mean, the shame of it in a way, is that the one you settle are the one that never nobody saw. Uh, They're the one who mm. never ended on social media. That's social media, um, for me, I use it when, when basically I, I kind of feel like it's not gonna be worth, you know, yeah. the hassle or the thing. But I don't want to let it slide either. So I want them to know that I know. Yeah. But I think it's it's never it's it's always your last weapon in negotiation. Yeah. Never the first one. But, yeah. uh, You're right, but and a lot also, a lot of yeah. cases you will never hear about. You don't hear about it because you settle. But then also, and, and, and because then a lot of people can think, ah, okay, so actually you're, because you're settling and you're getting money from them, you're, you're allowing them to do it again and just pay after. But mm-hmm. actually, no, because I've never ever settled, but in a settlement that allowed them to keep using the work. Ah, it was okay. money plus this goes off market. Great. <laughs> like this disappears. That's so also a very good cool. tip. Yeah, I think it's it's important to never let them because a lot of the time they're like, oh, but we can pay you and then we can keep using it. No, because it's not my work. It's a copy. So that needs to come down. Of course. Like, yeah, yeah. Because so yeah, often they just tweaked yeah. it a little bit. So it's still yeah. like a rip off. Yeah. But like. Or sometimes just... they even offer to credit you, which is brilliant. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> no, nothing. It's no, not my work. No, it's not you? my work. I didn't do it. <laughs> so it looks bad. But. Um. Um, but but also it's a, I I mean the last side of that is that I can understand that for a lot of I think I started going really after after these kind of cases and going hard at it when mm-hmm. I decided not to work for advertising anymore because I had okay. nothing to lose. But I think when you know it's also I think a lot of illustrators are scared of getting a bad reputation or never working with that agency again, and that could mean a lot of projects. So I I can understand that it's not you know not everybody has to go for it, but Sure. Like if you feel confident enough and secure enough, then that's obviously a little bit of an easier decision as when you're, like you said, when you're just starting out, it's much more difficult to kind of find the right partner, the right lawyer, have the funds to go through, funds and the nerves probably to go through. Yeah, I think the funds funds is not even that much as long as you don't go to court. It's, it's, you know, a letter is not even that expensive, Mm -hmm. but it's just that you never know what it will lead to. It's potentially money in the bin. But I remember actually one of the first lawyers I met, uh, which wasn't a very good one, she told me one day, like, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but maybe if you, maybe it would be better to drop it because you might never get commissions again if you start being that person. And I was like, man, I was like, no, I'm sorry. I think my work is good enough <laughs> yeah. so that it's not, I mean, the world is big. That yes. Let your fish in the sea. And... <laughs> And no, you can't do things out of fear. Nothing. You can't do anything out of fear. I think it was really bad advice, so I fired her. Good. Glad (laughs) to hear that. But yeah, you mentioned finding a good lawyer is almost as difficult as finding a good agent. You've been with Handsome Frank now for uh, as long as you've been freelance. Was that the first year that you joined them? Yeah. And um, like, uh, what would be your advice for finding like the, the, the right agent for you? Like, is there any, any tips? I guess you didn't really shop around. Like, uh, <laughs> I did a little bit. I did a you little did? bit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was nobody. Like, no, 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 I did a little bit. And um, I was very lucky. I think uh, 
John, I mean, Handsome Frank, they just started like six months before. Oh, no way. Yeah, like they were not even like full time. I think they were not full time. We used to say he was a double agent because he was still working at Creative <laughs> at Review. Creative Review, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so they just started. They were young. They were, you know, very enthusiastic. And I met other agents, but I, I don't know. For me, like it was always. I always knew it was going to be a personal relationship because that's the only way I know how to do these yeah. kind of things. So I needed to have someone who was nice. And a lot of the agents I met. Probably they were great agents, but they kind of were a bit dicky. You know, I don't know. They're just not the not the right type of personality for me. But then you need that's the thing. You can't have a nice guy if you want him to negotiate hard for you. Fair <laughs> enough. You can, it's you to be a balance. You can have both, but I think it's it's for me. It's the problem is that everybody always wants, and I was the first one to go with the big names. But then the the relationship when you go with really big agents is from the from the start you're feeling more grateful that they sign you than the other way around. So like the power struggle is not right. Yeah. And for me, that's the way I felt. And for me, I felt, well, at least if I'm going with a young agent, we can grow together. Mm-hmm. And if we make it, we make it together. And also I can renegotiate my deal much more easily than with another agent. That I was going to ask, because like, obviously when joining an agent, when they're starting off, you're probably going to get a better deal than if you were going with, I don't know, CIA or like, like like a large agency with maybe you know a roster of a hundred like fifty plus uh, uh, illustrators. I'm sure they'll give you and you get more care and you get more. True. I think even like in terms of percentages, they were always um, you know pretty aligned on on the industry. They were never kind of really under. But I respect that. It's like if you don't value yourself, no one will. True. So <laughs> I thought that was fair. But it's more that when we started, we didn't have a contract. You know, it was based. It was based on a handshake. It was trust. It was whereas when you go with this big agency, you have to sign and you have to read all the little lines. Yeah. <laughs> and, so what and was like, what was the initial deal then? Like, I'll, I'll I'll try and get you some work, and if you get some work, ideally you you know bring it through me. Like, was no. that was that the initial handshake or? It was. There was. I could do whatever I wanted. No. I could do like I could always have my clients. Um, I, I, I would decide whether I would pass it on to um, to them or not. Um, like editorial, I was keeping for myself. But slowly, we built a relationship, and and actually, I ended up passing on like pretty much everything. Great. But apart from editorial, which you know, where I don't I don't really need an agent. But then I think we have a very flexible relationship. So, like for example, when when we do charity projects, and we both feel that it's a great project for the portfolio, but then the budgets are not you know, they're not great or whatever, then um, he reduces, you know, John reduces his commission or, you know, we, we always find ways to make it work because, and he's never, ever pressured me into taking a job. Mm-hmm. Never. For the money or for the, he's always been, and that's what I always loved about him. Like, he's very, he's on my side. He's on my team. And what he wants is like, at some point I wanted to take a year off and he was like, that's fine. Just take a year off. I think people will remember you in a year. And you know, that's very... <laughs> For him, that was a year without commissions coming from me, which was back then I was working a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he's always seen the big picture. So I think he was the right fit for me. I don't know if he, you know, would be the right fit for everybody, but, sure. but I think it's that's what for me that's the most important thing when finding an agent is finding someone who shares your values. Mm-hmm. Um 
if what you want is lots of money, then you have to find the guy who is going to get you lots of money. If what you want is really great work, you're going to find the guy that has a connection to get you great work. Yeah. I think it's, it's all about what you need and where you want to go. And I think yeah. everybody by default, uh, people tend to go with the big names because it feels more, it's like a safety net. Yeah, I'd say Handsome Frank has now become a big name. Yeah. Like I think uh, <laughs> now getting uh, uh, on their roster must be a little bit more tricky than when you initially. Yeah, joined. but I think they are always. I think they are always looking, and they are always looking for young illustrators more than. Okay. I don't think they are really interested in signing like big. I mean, I don't know. I'm not talking for them, but like most of the time they sign young young talent because that's what they've always liked. I think. Yeah. No, they've always had a great eye. Like, I'd love to have John on the show someday and ask, like, get like his pref- pre- get the perspective of, of a of an yeah. agent and like what they look for and stuff. I'll I'll try and I think they're a- really good at talking about it as well. And, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, it's it's really uh, I think they're great. They're great. Nice. Um, yeah, I think the, dealing with 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 agents. Like, are there any other when when you when you first got when you first got st- uh, talking to Handsome Frank, for example, at that beginning of that freelance career, what were the other pitfalls that you that you now wish you you know w- you would have known when you first started? Like, I think you mentioned, for example, keeping a really close eye on you know like finances and stuff was always very important to you. So to have like an understanding of what's going on on the business side. Yeah, I think. I mean, I I think it's very like. I mean, creativity is one thing, talent is one thing. Hard work is another thing. Wait, let me let me let me let me interrupt there. This is where I wanted to bring in your the the, the, <laughs> the quote that I found, which I still really like. I know you said you weren't sure if ten percent was the right yeah, number, but but you said like talent is ten percent, the rest is people skills, maturity, a good business sense, and a controllable ego. I couldn't agree more with that. Like I, I think you know you can be uh, as 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 amazing at your work uh, uh, as anybody. And if you don't know what you're doing, and if you have a, a you know like a, a, an overinflated <laughs> ego, then yeah. you're not you're not going to get very far, in my opinion. No, and the thing is that uh, you know you're also building a reputation, and I think the the your ability to communicate about your work, especially when you're doing commission. So it's different when you're doing personal project because you can communicate with yourself fine usually. But when you're doing commissioned work or you're collaborating with uh, with people, it's so important the way you communicate and you talk about your work, how to, you know, you're telling them a story. How do you present your work? How do you sell them on your work? Sometimes it's even like, how do you make them believe in their ideas? Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's people are people. I think if you understand people, you will, you know, you will make less compromise, you know, in the end about your work. So I think, you know, knowing, being nice to people is really important. And also, but genuinely being nice and liking people is important. And also, you never know where someone might end up. Like, I know in my case, um, I, re- I remember when I met Paul Willoughby, who was back then um, uh, editor, I mean, a creative director of um, Little White Lies, the magazine. Yeah. In London, yeah. In the magazine. And we did a few projects together, very badly paid, but really fun at the beginning of my career. And... And I, I always liked that guy. And, you know, I I didn't know anybody, but I showed up at the exhibition to meet him because I had never met him. And we had a little chat and he, did, he had no idea who I was. He looked at me blankly like, who are you? Uh, Malika. And, you know, it was the first year. And and I don't know. And then years later, he came to me and he gave me the BAFTAs. 
you never know. And I'm not saying that that one conversation did, but... But it did. Is, you know, he remembered me. Like, I don't know. Like Exactly. Like, it's those little uh, uh, personal moments where you were just being you and you're just, like, having a t- talk with them. I'm sure that had an effect on that situation. And I think it's it's always trying to... Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's like basically when you're saying create the kind of work you want to do, you know, show the kind of work you want to be commissioned for, mm-hmm. it's the same with people, you know? Mm-hmm. Hang out with the type of people you want to work with. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean be nice to everybody because not everybody deserves for you to be nice, but it's the same. It's like if you if you make connections with the right people, then you'll, you'll get the right type of ethos and way of working and, and all of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I've taken up an entire hour of your time. I think that's a really good uh, uh, sentiment to, to end our chat on. Uh, Malika, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. That was super You're interesting. It's super nice to speak to you again after what was it? Uh, years. It's been far too long. Like I'll I'll try and make sure that we have another chat in a couple of years, not in another seven or eight years. Oh God, <laughs> I'll be sold by then. <laughs> oh, we don't. Yeah, we don't want to think. We don't want to think about my, that. My in my house with a pool. Lots of Mexican craft. Yes. And having a piña colada on oh, our podcast. Man. Yeah, that that would be amazing. I I do. I am in. I am in dire need of a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all are. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks Perfect. again, Malika. Thanks, Glenn. So back on my walk again. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, make sure to share it with somebody who you'll think will find that interesting, that conversation. If you want to find out more about Malika Favre's work, then head over to our Instagram or Twitter channels where we'll be sharing more of our work this week. And if you have any feedback for this podcast, you know, you can always reach us on those channels as well. Always happy to hear. If there's an area that you want us to explore more, like I'm thinking maybe about getting a little bit more into product design and speaking to design teams on different uh, digital products, since that's an area that I'm interested in at the moment. But maybe I should also be speaking to photographers or architects or musicians. I mean, it'd be great to hear from you guys what you'd like to hear more of. Otherwise, you'll hear from me in the next episode and I hope you have a nice day.